The classic story always begins with once upon a time. We all have stories, every single one of us. From the depressed billionaire to the ecstatic prisoner. From the highest of the high to the lowest of the low, we all have stories. Our stories can inspire, instruct, uplift, and warn others. Exploring the world for the greatest stories of all time. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Aaron O'Dowd Show. The Aaron O'Dowd Show. Our soul is the screen upon which we project our dreams. What's your story? Hello and welcome. On today's show, we have Jim Allen, who is part of this Space Camp program and the Texas School for the Blind. Hello and welcome to the show, Jim. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me on your show. Looking forward to your questions. Yeah. So when did this all start for you, Jim, in Space Camp, Visual Impairment and Technology? Well, I started in Space Camp in uh, 1993, which was, um, I think, three or four years. Yes, Space Camp for Interested Visually Impaired Students started in, the, in 1990. And so I started in 93 as a um, chaperone with a couple of three kids and uh, just recently met up with uh, two of my um, buddies from that year who came to Space Camp this year. So that was uh, 23 years ago. It was nice having a reunion. We were so much younger then. Yeah, and um, 20 years later, has things changed in the program for you? Oh, things have have changed tremendously. So when I started, I was a uh, uh, chaperone. And then, um, let's see, it was, uh, I don't know, maybe five years after that, they noticed I had some technological skills and so started becoming the, the uh, sort of coordinator or the support for the advanced program when we were still using a, a, um, a Unix and we had a Unix based system and uh, we used window eyes and a telnet session into the Unix system to get at all the screens and at the time that was the only program that the computers really worked on for kids who were blind, even though it was really rudimentary. And then uh, I worked with Space Camp and their developers of their new software that we see today um, to make it accessible because it's all gaming software. And they said, you know, screen readers won't work with this, and Zoom text might, but it's still not going to speak anything. And so we talked about what the capabilities of the screen reader were and came up with a um, mechanism, which is the Cyvis keypad, to navigate through the screens, essentially doing um, what a screen reader would do, but it was a you know dedicated keypad to specific functions, so you couldn't wander just anywhere. And they made it uh, self-voicing so that only the things that needed to talk talked and they could control the vocabulary. And then they added uh, three levels of Zoom and then all the programs became accessible, camp and um, 
academy and advanced academy. So that was a, a huge change. And we've seen um, a growth in, a huge growth in kids. You know, we had, um, I don't remember what we were at in the, in 93, and we were slowly approaching, um, we were supposed to hit 200 in uh, 2001, and then 9-11 happened, and so that uh, cratered it, and it took us a while to build back up again, and then there was the um, sort of the economic crash, and that was, uh, you know, so that kept our numbers in the in the 170s, but we've been creeping up in the last couple of three years now. We've had um, over 200 kids, so it's been uh, pretty remarkable. So Space Camp is just finished now. Do you spend a whole year planning on the technology side, or is that just something you pop in and pop out on? No, it's pretty much something we uh, pop in and pop out of. You know, in my daily work, you know, I was the uh, uh, webmaster at the School for the Blind here in Texas and started the website in uh, 97 and then just uh, gave it up um, about two years ago and I'm doing other things now. Uh, but, the, you know, the technology at Space Camp is uh, pretty much out of our hands. We do a lot of Braille work if they have, you know, new programs or they're changing the scripts or things. Um, did some review of the um, new Orion capsule and the Altair lander that we had this year, and that just needed Braille. And so now we're working on, you know, sort of low-tech stuff, getting the, um, the panels brailled and the panels done in large print so that we don't have to stick Braille on. It took us four and a half hours to put the, the Braille on the uh, new capsule and lander, and then we, you know, it takes a couple of hours to peel it all off, too. So most of the time, Space Camp technology takes care of itself. You know, I get there um, a couple of days early just to see if there's, you know, what needs to happen and check it all out. But it's it's pretty pretty stable. And you said you gave up webmastering. Why did you give it up? Uh, just because I had sort of reached my my limits. You know, it's um, I didn't know JavaScript. And uh, at my age, which is, you know, 60 plus, I didn't feel like learning it. And we needed a new um, webmaster, some new blood in to, uh, who was a serious developer because the demands were greatly increasing for the features and functionality on the website and I just didn't have those skills. So now we have two developers who are working on the website as well as, you know, all our content creators. So it was uh, a bit difficult giving up my uh, my baby as it was since I uh, created it and uh, ran it for uh, a long time. And through that time, did you see the changes happen to the individuals using it? Um, well, technology has certainly gotten a lot better. You know, JAWS has uh, improved greatly, and now we have NVDA. And uh, the whole mobile scene and the iPhone is uh, a tremendous boon to accessibility. And to somewhat lesser degree, uh, talk back on the Android. Uh, but all of those things, you know, none of that existed back in the 90s. And so it's just been an explosion. The um, web accessibility issues have gotten a little more complicated, but they're still pretty much, you know, not having labeled forms and missing alt text. <laughs> Seems like those never go away. Yeah, they, they don't. And what makes web accessibility difficult than hardware? Oh, well, you know, 
hardware you don't have a lot of control over. It's, you know, the hardware is, is the hardware is what it is. You know, it, it's sort of, you know, with the, at least with the Android market, you've got, you know, 15 different or more hardware makers and they don't talk back doesn't work the same on all of them and they have different functionalities and different features. But with software, like on the web, golly, you've got, you know, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of authors all doing things in their own unique, special way. And so when you evaluate things, you have to try and get inside their head and figure out what it is they're doing. And then, you know, how do you talk to them to get them to fix their problems or, you know, what is it on the user side that they can do or the browser side to uh, help fix the, the mishmash that's, that's out there. And there's still amazing amounts of mishmash, even in, in professional sites. I'm, I'm amazed at some of the things they do, and I'm appalled that they paid people to create this sort of stuff. Is it a WordPress problem or a Google problem? Explain a bit more of the problems that you're facing. Oh, well, it's, you know, when, when we, we need a, an application to do something at the school and, you know, if they're web-based, we have a much better chance of them being accessible and it's easier to get them remediated than if you buy a dedicated, proprietary, standalone piece of software because the standalone piece of software is really complicated because they're doing the interface and everything else and those, I find, are pretty much have large accessibility problems and are not going to be remediated. Websites are easier to change and fix and remediate for accessibility if you can communicate to them that, uh, you know, this is a useful thing. Being in government and education also helps because, you know, we have a mandate for things to be accessible. So we have a little bit of leverage to uh, get things fixed. And when you started at the Texas School of the Blind, were you technically webmaster in technology or did you do something else? Oh, so when I started at the school, which was in 88, I was, um, I had been teaching itinerant teacher, you know, have car wheel teach um, all around the local school district for 10 years. And then I came to the state or to the school and moved into the IT department. Now, remember, this is back in the days of Apple IIEs were still the primary computer in, in uh, education. And then we bought, um, I set up the school's first IBM uh, sort of network on campus with a, a big running batch file to load up JAWS and Zoom text and, you know, switch between WordPerfect and stuff because this was still, uh, we had AT machines, which were um, 286s. And um, then I became a, a serious hardware geek. So dealing with, you know, um, sound blaster, sound cards, and different kind of synthesizer cards, and network cards, and interrupts, and getting all of that to work. It was amazing that, um, you know, because I had eight identical computers in our first network, and um, eight exactly the same sound cards, and eight speech synthesizer cards, and eight network cards. And I thought, oh, this will be great. I'll have one configuration for everything and no I had six configurations in eight machines because that was just the nature of the beast on who worked with what and so I did that for 10 years um, running the network buying the software 
I negotiated the first site licenses for um, Zoom Text and JAWS, and then um, did uh, bought most uh, many of the Braille printers here, and did you know interfacing back then was all serial. So I had built most of the cables for the things to work with too, because we didn't have uh, at, you know we didn't have parallel Braille printers at the time, and then there was um, refreshable Braille displays and a bunch of other stuff, and then I did that until. 97 when uh, sort of the web happened and I uh, changed gears and became webmaster. Wow, that sounds like you were the guy who provided the tech in the, in the school. Uh, yeah, it was it was a, a lot of fun. We did a lot of training. Uh, my good buddy uh, Jay Stitely, uh he and I were together here for uh, 10 years and we trained all over the country. You know, we did uh, the Closing the Gap conference for um, 10 years, and we did um, one- and two-day pre-conferences every year on different topics. And it was it was just a blast because things were changing so rapidly. There was always, you know, there were lots of uh, the portable devices were coming out, you know, the Braille and Speak, and uh, Arctic Technologies had a, had a bunch, and I think Arctic has uh, gone away now. And it's been interesting to see the changes in the industry because now it's like we're down to two. You know, there's humanware and there's um, Freedom Scientific. But before, there were there were dozens, and each with their own device and their own software. And so there's been a, a huge consolidation in the uh, in the industry over time. So that it's been interesting to see. I don't know if it's been a boon or a bust for um, you know the end user. Do you miss going to those conferences and playing with the wires and hardware for the technology? Um, you know, I go to uh, CSUN now because uh, Closing the Gap sort of uh, retrenched it uh, for a while. It was a huge, huge vision conference. And then uh, it changed. And they retrenched back into augmentative communication and uh, more practitioner-based and less theoretical. And that's when I started going to CSUN, or not C- yeah, to CSUN, because uh, it was more web, more geeky. Sometimes I still need a hardware fix, you know, and have to go take something apart and put it back together, just just because. Um, but the, the software is a interesting... And figuring out what people did and why the, you know, the browser and the screen reader combination do what they do and how to make it do it better is uh, lots of fun, too. What is CSUN? Oh, CSUN. Um, so that's the, um, what is that? That's the International Conference on Technology for People with Disabilities, which is a mouthful and doesn't have a good acronym. But it was started by the Cal State University uh, Northridge campus, CSUN. And so they ran it, and uh, so it just, and rather than saying that great big international conference, blah, 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 everyone just calls it CSUN. You know, CSUN, there's uh, 3,000 professionals, and they, they do, um, it's, it, it's great because there's, there's research and, and there's, techniques and there's bleeding edge stuff and you know some of the best people in the field are there there's also um 
you know, Austin is home to South by Southwest, which is known as a music festival, but it's become quite the tech festival. And uh, accessibility has been become a big part of South by Southwest. And I've uh, been to that part and um, uh, presented a couple of times. And that's even a larger venue because there'll be, you know, 35, 40,000 people. And to have accessibility and people with disabilities represented at a conference that size is pretty amazing. And the crowds you get for an individual session, you know, there'd be 100, 150, 200 people, which is, you know, unbelievable for a mainstream, non-disability specific conference. And then uh, living in Austin is fabulous because I think of it as a, a sort of a, a mecca of accessibility. We have a huge number of accessibility professionals in Austin, and we just sort of synergize off of each other. And and uh, there's always somebody to call, and if you need to, you know, go out and, and have a beer and figure out a problem. So it's uh, quite good. In the technology side, where do you see accessibility going in the United States? Well, we have, you know, more and more laws. Um, there's still a huge need for education of web developers. And um, it seems that education and uh, government are driving it because we have a legal mandate to make sure things are accessible. But we've been sort of saying that for years, and it's, it's slow. I think things are improving, but the technology is changing faster. And... It's, um, let's see, future. Hmm. I think the portable device, your um, cell phone is going to become more and more critical to um, accessing everything and anything. Um, I have huge concerns over security. You know, they took down a major security guy's blog site and overwhelmed his uh, security software because it was light bulbs and thermostats that were attacking his site because they were unsecure. So there was this massive botnet And, uh, you know, that's going to be an ongoing issue. And then uh, I think driverless cars will be a huge boon in accessibility for people, for personal transportation, for those who can't drive. I think that will be a, you know, a coming thing in the next uh, probably 10 years or less. What do you think of uh, virtual reality and AI for accessibility? You know, there was the, um, the, what was their second life way back when? 10, 15 years ago. Um, there were some interesting things going on with that, but it, it sort of faded, and I'm not sure there's a lot of work there. The um, the, the amount of meta-information that's needed in virtual reality, um, you know, they've got the haptic gloves and those sorts of things that would give you feedback, but for walking around and navigating and knowing where you are and wayfinding, Uh, if you happen to be blind, um, there's some real issues with that, even in, in Second Life. Um, you know, so I look to the left, and uh, it doesn't say anything unless somebody programmed in, you know, you're standing in front of the some store, and uh, the door is to your left so that you don't, you know, walk into the wall. And then when you get into the restaurant, You know, they don't have, unless they start coming up with some serious audio feedback, 
then you need to get information about the layout of the chairs and the tables and what's the art on the wall and who's in the room. And that's a massive amount of information that I think is, you know, done visually very easily doing it auditorily or putting a massive amount of, you know, meta information, hidden information in there so that you can query and say, I'm in this room, what is there? in, you know, uh, several levels of detail so that you can move around and function. There were, I know there were people who were trying to do like a, um, a uh, sort of like a guide dog. But if you're going to provide enough information for the guide dog in a virtual reality world, why not just provide it to the uh, user themselves? So you really think that technology isn't accessible, but what do you think would be the, the alternative to something like that, in your opinion? Um, I don't know. You know, I, I think of the, um, if you remember from back in the in the 80s and with uh, the Zork games, you know, that there would just be some little statement, I'm standing on the street, you know, or even like what you use with your um, navigation tools. You know, you're on the southeast corner of this street and that street. And to your left is this, to your right is that straight ahead is, this, you know, if you cross the street, you'll see this thing behind you is this other stuff. And up above is Lord knows what. It, you know, it can be done. It's just a matter, just like with web accessibility, of having the creators and the authors do the stuff that needs to be done. You know, put in the alt, put in the meta tags, put in the stuff, and uh, just to provide that information. And, uh, you know, there's just many, uh, many issues. And it, it still comes down to you know, the, the creators providing the information because there's only, you know, the user can only interact with the stuff and they can only interact with the stuff that's available to them. And if it's not there, they can't interact with it. I see that you became the Hall of Fame in Space Camp. Tell us how that must have felt for you. Oh, that was that was pretty amazing because um, Dan Oates was inaugurated in 2007 in the, uh, in the first class of Hall of Famers, which was just absolutely amazing and very well deserved. And I was in a meeting um, in a whole other building with the Texas Education Agency, I think it was, or somebody, and got this call and it said, you know, Space camp on my phone, and it's, you know, I excused myself in the meeting because I thought it might have been something to do with software, or, you know, I wasn't sure what. And they said, So, uh, you've been inducted into the Hall of Fame. I was, uh, I guess to use a, a British term, godsmacked. I, I just couldn't believe it. Um, my first thought was, I'm, I'm not worthy. You know, what, what have I done? And they said, Oh, but you did this and this and these things, and been bringing kids for. 17 years and you help make the software speak and do large print and you know all this sort of stuff and it's still sometimes I think I'm I'm not worthy um, but it's a, a fabulous fabulous group of people and we have become a um, it's one of those groups where once you become a member you're instantly become part of the family and it's your choice how involved you want to be with the family or not. You know, so we have some distant relatives who have, you know, got inaugurated and we haven't heard from them again. And then there are others that, 
You know, we hang out, we do Facebook, we do email, we're doing all sorts of things. You know, we talk on the phone, participate in each other's projects and things. So it's a, it's a great, uh, a great, great honor and a uh, very special group of people. I was watching your speech that you gave and it looked like um, the emotion that you had to be identified as the work that you do for Space Camp. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, I thought I had a speech. And uh, it didn't. Uh, it didn't go very well. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's surprising. You, you know, you, you don't expect the emotion to just come uh, welling up. And uh, and I sort of held it together. I got to thank my uh, uh, good buddy and Hall of Famer uh, Vincent Vasso because uh, he was there recording it, and that's why we have the recording of the speech. Because of course, being technology, there was there just happened to be a uh, a glitch in uh, Space Camp's recording system, and so they didn't get any of the the video of the speech that uh, Vincent did. So that's why we have that. And there were um, several people who uh, came up to me afterwards. You know, one of them was a, was an astronaut, which was cool. And he says, "I'm glad you stopped speaking when you did, because they would have seen an astronaut cry." <laughs> which I thought was, was uh, pretty amusing. And that, that was a very special event. I mean, I got the, uh, we also, uh, after the award, they had a band called, uh, I believe it was Max Q, which is made up of astronauts playing under the Saturn V. And I got to dance with my wife under the, under the Saturn V in the Davidson Center. It was pretty amazing. It sounds magical. What do they give you, Jim, when you get, become the hall, into the Hall of Fame? Um, well, you get the, uh, the blue jacket and um, uh, with a Hall of Fame and your, your wings. It says, you know, for me, it was class of 09. And, uh, uh, and we got a big uh, a, a certificate that says you were in the Hall of Fame. And then there's this big, huge, framed picture because you get this little flag that um, and I'm trying to remember what was on the flag but it, it flew in space on a shuttle mission and there's all the information about the shuttle mission and the astronauts who flew in it and that the flag is certified from uh, to having been in space and uh, let's see and you get a medallion and other, other than you know we don't do it for the things we get. It's it's the honor. Uh, those things are nice. There was an interesting thing. We were at the uh, one of the um, so there was um, a movie, sort of a Hallmark Hall of Fame thing called A Smile as Big as the Moon, about the first uh, group of kids with disabilities to go to space camp. And there was a premiere. We did a premiere down in um, at Johnson in Houston. So um, my wife and I drove down there and. Um, my wife sat next to Dottie Metcalf Lindenberger, who was the first um, space camp graduate to go into uh, become an astronaut, and she was inducted in 2007. And they were sitting there, you know, sobbing over the over the movie, sharing um, a box of Kleenex between them. But the um, because we were on Johnson uh, Space Center. They, um, we said we couldn't wear our blue jackets outdoors 
because those are they look very 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 similar to astronaut jackets and only the astronauts wear the blue jackets outdoors so we had to be a bit circumspect <laughs> i thought that was a, an interesting little uh, aside when we went down there and they said well don't wear your jackets outside you can wear them in the theater but if you go back outside um, there may be photographers and things, and we don't want people thinking that you guys are astronauts. Like, okay. Why was, do you think Space Camp wasn't in the, uh, the Jefferson Space Station in Houston? Oh, they just, um, uh, you mean for the, for the movie? They, just, they did a, a premiere of the movie at, um, at Space Camp, and then they did another one in... Johnson, um, just because there's so many Hall of Famers there. In Texas, with Houston and myself, let's see, we probably have nine Hall of Famers living in Texas, just because a lot of them are associated with the space industry, so that it falls that they would be in, in Houston. And there wasn't, I don't know, they might have done one in Kennedy, I, I don't remember, or any place else, I just remember that one. I know that the Space Camp program for the Vision Impaired is based in Alabama, but do you think they could have based it in the center in Houston, Texas? No, there's the, the only Space Camp in the United States is in um, Huntsville. There used to be one in California and there and one in Florida, and both of those have shut down now. And uh, so they just have the one in uh, Huntsville, which is right next to Marshall Space Flight Center, where they, the mission control for uh, the space station is located. And there's a, a smaller, much smaller space camp in Canada. There's one in Turkey. Um, And I'm trying to think where else there's one. I think Japan has one. Um, um, oh, um, Kuwait, I think, has one. And But we're the only uh, visually impaired camp. So this year we had um, eight countries represented, and we've had you know up to 10 countries, 11 countries represented. So we had kids from, uh, well, of course, Ireland, which you know about. They come every year. Mm -hmm. uh, we had kids from uh, Belgium. Uh, Greece has come for the last couple of years. South Africa, Canada, Australia came this year. You know, that's some huge expense for, and Belgium, did I say Belgium? Anyway, yeah, it it's, uh, it's a, a huge expense for, you know, people coming from Europe. And, uh, you know, 12 or 14 hour, if you're coming from Australia, 17 hour flight. And then you've got to get over your jet lag and do space camp and, run 10, 11 hours a day, and then uh, try and stay awake to get on the plane to go home again. And then you get, like, the weekend, and then you're back at work. It's like, wow, that's, uh, that's a lot. I found it grueling for the two times I went to, but it's a memory, I think, that is quite special to a vision-impaired person that gets to experience it. Yeah, it, it, it really, um, you know, where I, I call it a transformative experience. It, it depends on the kid, but we have, you know, all kinds of anecdotal evidence that uh and i think becky coakley said that best you know it's it's there's there's space but it's not about the space kids with visual impairment suffer greatly from um insidious low expectations from the population as a whole and their teachers um not vision teachers but any anybody they come across it's like you're blind you can't do that 
and they're, they're beat upon. And you see the kids coming in to space camp, and they're sort of, you know, shuffling along, the head hanging down, you know, just... And by Monday, because they come in on Saturday, by Monday, they're walking taller, and their heads are up, and they're, you know, it's like, I can do stuff. Because space camp, no, is not in the vocabulary. You know, they take I can as far as you possibly can. And so kids are climbing the 50-foot wall. They're landing the shuttle. They're commander of their mission. They're, you know, repairing the satellite. They're flying the jet fighter. They're landing the night on an aircraft carrier at night. And they're doing all of these things because nobody said you can't because you're blind. And they're not competing with any sighted kids. And so there's no, um, you know, it's like, oh, this, this is a job for a sighted person. It's like, no, that's, that's not the case. So they, it's a, you know, it's an immersive environment, but it's really, really supportive. And it really builds on the kids that say, you can, can do stuff. And it, you know, it, for a lot of kids, it changes their behavior and their whole uh, perception of themselves that they can do stuff. And I'm not going to let people tell me no anymore that I can't do this thing or that thing. Do you see the same thing in the Texas School for the Blind or is it just base camp, a special area that this thing happens? Uh, we do some at the, you know, at the School for the Blind and, and I think maybe all schools for the blind just because we're you know, a, a center of, of expertise and we get blindness and low vision. So we try and let the kids do, you know, in fact, we require them to do as much as possible. You will make your bed. You will get dressed in the morning by yourself. You will learn how to go grocery shopping and all these sorts of things um, that are all those skills that, you know, the, the itinerant teacher, when I was uh, traveling in the school district, I used to do a, a thousand miles, which is what, uh, 1,500 kilometers a month in my school district teaching my students. And I'm doing a lot of academic support, but at the same time, I had to find a way to work in, how do you go to the grocery store, how do you do this, you know, all those sort of things of daily living that everybody else picks up just by watching and, you know, working with the parents and say, you know, you need to stop picking out his clothes every morning. You know, he needs to learn how to make his bed and he needs to do these sorts of things so they can become more self-sufficient because it's just the, the perception that I think a lot of people have is, oh, you're blind and you, I need to do this for you and that for you and this other thing for you. And, and that makes you, you know, more handicapped. They, and so the, here at the school, um, we do a lot of that sort of thing. And I think it's a really nurturing environment and helps the kids. At the same time, you know, you have to realize that in Texas we have yeah, more than 9,000 students who are visually impaired in the state. The school has space for 150. So most kids are um, out in their home school district where they should be living at home and doing stuff. And they seem to survive pretty well. The school acts as a center for when things go wrong. You know, the, some students suddenly lost their vision, and now they need intensive immersive Braille, or, you know, we have targeted classes for, um, we have 
week-long classes during the year on math technology or low vision aids or specific technology, or we have weekend programs on special little short topics. And so we bring in some of those 9,000 kids from around the state, but by and large, you know, most of the kids have not uh, come to the school or they, you know, it, it may be in their, their 12 years of, of schooling, you know, they might come to a summer school program. So we have some impact. Um, we also have a, um, an outreach department that does uh, consultations around the school or around the state, which is, you know, huge. It's the size of France. Uh, Texas is. And uh, so they travel all over the state and do evaluations or work with parents or work with teachers on specific problems. And we do lots of conferences and things. But the school, you know, as far as the kids, I think it's a it's a really useful environment. Um, it's but because it's, you know, residential and 24 hours and you're actually going to school, it's a slightly different environment than the really cool environment of, oh, I'm in, in space and I'm running a mission and I have all of these uh, responsibilities for my team and all that sort of stuff, uh, which is incredibly powerful, whereas at the school, it's all about you and some about your classmates, but it's not that whole teamwork effort. What is it like to get around Austin as a mobility accessibility? Uh, well, we've got uh, buses. We have um, a lot of people who are blind and a lot of orientation and mobility people. Um, I think the buses are not as efficient as they could be, but then that's, you know, unless you're on the East Coast or in San Francisco, uh, where they have subways and things, our, you know, rapid transit, mass transit stuff is not as uh, nearly as good or as efficient as it is in Europe. You know, we don't have a lot of trains and things in Texas. The, the car is king. Um, we had uh, Uber and Lyft in town, but then there were political issues and security issues. And so they pulled out in a, in a fit of peak said, well, we're not going to go by your rules, even though they're following those rules in, in other cities. So it, it, we have room for improvement. And, uh, you know, being uh, visually impaired means that, uh, you know, you have, to, you have to plan your housing along a bus route. And you have to make sure that your work is close to the bus route or finding other ways to, to get there. Um, the one thing that I think is unique um, Austin may be one of the cities that gets, uh, you know, when if if and when Google Car actually happens, because there's a mess of Google Cars in Austin who are driving around practicing their uh, self-driving ability. So they, you know, Austin will be well mapped by the self-driving car if and when it comes to Austin, if it's a Google Car. And I think we're over a million people now, and if you take all the surrounding communities, we're probably a, a million and a half or so. So when I came to Austin in, in the early 70s, it was a, a, a sleepy little, you know, almost rural town of uh, maybe 100 150,000 people, of which 40,000 of them were students. And now we're, you know, we're a huge metropolitan area with all the traffic and issues that, you know, large metropolitan areas have. And... A not um, where they're building it up more and more the the bus system, 
and it's getting there. You know, now with GPS and things, you have an app on your phone, and it'll tell you where the bus is and how long it's going to be before it gets to your bus stop. And that sort of thing. So that's that's kind of nice. I know living in America for a period of time that everybody drives by car, but are the bus routes as good as what you say? Um, well, the buses are nice. They don't always go where you want them to go. Um, they take a lot longer to get there. Um, we also have, you know, accessible cabs that will come pick you up and drop you off and run certain routes and things. But you're still at the, you know, the mercy of the, the van or the the bus as to scheduling and traffic, you know, you know, you're, you don't have the independence of a car to just get up and go whenever you want. You have to plan. It's like, oh, I want to go. It's like, well, the bus doesn't come for 15, 20 minutes, so I can't go now. Or I have to plan that I have to walk to the bus stop. So I have to plan my, my time. And then if the bus came two minutes early and left because it's not a scheduled time stop, then I've missed it and I have to wait another 20 minutes. So the um, the buses are there. They work. They're nice. Um, are there as many of them? I think people who use them regularly would say no. You know, don't go all the places they want them to go. But that's the way it is. Um, have you experienced in your own work of being vision impaired or, or something like it to, for you to understand the work that goes into helping the individual? Oh, sure. Um, um, well, I have a I had a retinal detachment. Uh, a few years ago, and uh, that was quite the adventure. So now I have a, a field loss on my right side, and I, you know, make sure that when I'm walking, I don't have. You know, if I'm walking with somebody, I make sure they're on my left side so that I don't I don't step on them or forget they're there. You know, it's that out of sight, out of mind sort of thing. I've always had uh, poor vision, so I wear I wear glasses. I'm corrected but I'm dealing with the, the cataracts and the glare and all that sort of stuff. So I have a, a bit of understanding. And being a you know teacher of the visually impaired, I, I went through all the training and did you know hours and hours and hours under the blindfold and, and that sort of stuff. So I have a, a, a fairly good idea. And because I work in the field, I have a lot of friends who are um, blind and visually impaired and we have social activities together and we've traveled together and it's always interesting the the hassles that uh, people with visual impairment have to go to especially if you have a dog and trying to go through airports it's it's just crazy and in your opinion do you think society prevents that or is it just lack of education it's just lack of education you know i mean the number number of blind people that are around are, you know, a very, very small percentage of the population, which is why, you know, one of the things that makes a school for the blind or space camp so cool is that, uh, you know, there's a huge gathering of people who have similar conditions to yourself. And, you know, because I've been in, you know, traveled around where, you know, that this one kid is the only kid in that school. And he's, you know, sort of a, a you know, there's, there's no hiding for him or no being anonymous because he's the only kid with a cane in the school. And for some of the kids that live out in West Texas, you know, they may be the only person who is blind, you know, for hundreds of miles around. I had a student that I went to space camp with who had never seen another person with albinism. And he, you know, we got to space camp and there were six kids with albinism standing there. And he thought he'd died and gone to heaven. It's like, oh my gosh, there's people who look like me. Uh, So I think there's, society 
doesn't know about people with disabilities, and they, I think they, you know, by and large, fear disabilities and will move to the other side of the street or pet the dog when, even when clearly there's a sign that says, don't pet the dog, he's working. And, um, but there are those who, who, who get it and will assist as appropriate. You know, it's just, there's so many more people who don't know than do know, and you just have to go with it. I think sometimes it's, it's frustrating for people with visual impairments having to deal with, uh, those of us who are, are uh, as a friend of mine said, retinal chauvinists, he says, those people who are who are vision dependent, he says, sometimes they just drive me nuts. That is a good quote. Yeah. Jim, do you use an iPhone? No, I use uh, I use a Droid. I have a I have a Samsung. The people I know who are uh, visually impaired, probably ninety percent of them use uh, an eye device, and the other ten percent are using Androids. And um, I, I I think the those the the eye device has you know Apple has really stepped up and and provided a major um, accessibility device for everybody because there's so much you can do with an iPhone. So I I think the uh, um, you know the smartphone or the smart device is as close to the um, universal remote that you know, that I remember back in the 80s thinking about if there was one device that could, you know, communicate with your front door, with it could be your television remote, it could talk to the exchange interface information with your, your stove or your microwave, you know, that all have membrane keyboards. And it's like, you know, it'd be great to pull up the microwave app and say, you know, I want to cook something at this power for this long and have it speak on your phone. And just and then you say, okay, send, and it goes and puts all that stuff into the microwave. Or your washing machine, it's getting harder and harder to find um, an analog uh, washing machine or a dryer because they all have these, these funky knobs now that just spin round and round and round. There's not a quick stop setting. There's, you know, and they all have visual displays and they're talking to you and giving you all kinds of advice and questions. Like, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And if you can't see it, you're, you know, you're just limited to what you can do with the device. And I think now with all of these apps and things, hopefully, you know, all this sort of stuff will have some interface that you will have an app on your phone to control the the stove, the microwave, your thermostat, your television. All of these things will be there. And I think that will be really incredible. It, it sure would. And make accessibility a lot easier for the person that can't see. Yeah. You know, the uh, uh, who is it? Finland, who made uh, Nokia. I don't know if they're still around anymore. But in Finland, you know, mo- almost everybody had a Nokia phone, and you could, um, you know, that your your phone became your credit card. Your phone bill was your credit card bill because you could go up to any vending machine, and it had a phone number on it, and you could dial the phone number for the vending machine, and then make a selection, and it would be charged to your phone. So if you didn't have any money, <laughs> you could, you know, go to you know any vending machine. It's like that's amazing.
Yeah. You know, and the, the electronic tickets now for, for airlines and things, that's huge because now you know what, what, what ticket. You don't have to carry around a piece of paper and do I have the right one and you hand them three of them and go pick the one that's right and hopefully you give me the right ones back. It's on your phone. So it's, um, I think that there's going to be more and more and more capabilities dumped on the phone and at least on the iDevice, they have a better chance of being accessible. I think... Um, uh, Google may, uh, you know, tighten up the things on the Android because the talkback on the is supposed to be, you know, that the the speech module is supposed to be part of the kernel, but not all um, phone manufacturers choose to put it in there. So talkback works on some phones and not others. You know, where um, on the Apple it, it's it's always there because Apple has everything locked up. You play by our rules or you don't play at all. And Android is more wide open, which allows it to be more innovative, but also allows you to have these, you know, things work some places and not other places. What do you think of the Amazon Echo as a tool of accessibility? I, you know, I know some people who have started to use it. I know um, Amazon is working hard on it. I don't have one myself. I know several people who have three of them. And, you know, it's, it's their voice recognition gets better. I think there's more and more you can do, but there again, the Echo is, um, you know, doing voice input, but it's got a, you know, essentially a smart device inside because it can change your lights and change your thermostat, you know, so if, if things have an interface that the Echo can get to, you can do it. And so it, you know, it's the, the, the sort of the talking home thing, but I don't, I don't see people as carrying an Echo around unless you know, Amazon suddenly comes up with a uh, an Echo app, which I'm sure is not far in the future, to um, compete with uh, Siri and and uh, Cortana and uh, what is this Google Google Speak or OK Google or whatever that thing is on the on the Android. I've just started using that, and I don't have an Echo and and don't plan on it anytime soon. In so I think voiceover and uh, many models like it will become very important for the elderly um, because we all become vision impaired over a period of time regardless if it's something we inherit or something absolutely so so jim where what's happening in your your life now oh um well i'm getting ready to go on vacation to uh oregon for uh three weeks to uh look at uh waterfalls and drink some really really excellent excellent oregon pinot noirs and take a look at the Pacific Ocean. So when I when I get back, it's going to be um, work as usual. You got to start up the. Uh, um, so I've sort of abandoned my W3C work. Where it got uh, there's the low vision accessibility task force where we're trying to create more low vision guidelines for um, the web content accessibility guidelines. And so the working group is working hard on that. I had planned my vacation the better part of nine months ago before we knew there was going to be a deadline in December for when we had to have our specific um, proposed success criteria for low vision additions to um, the guidelines. So when I come back in November, it's going to be, you know, hit it hard to make sure we get our stuff done. And uh, But then we have Thanksgiving and then Christmas coming up. So it'll be, you know, five weeks, maybe six weeks. And then also when I come back, um, we'll have a, a month before our 
Lego robotics competition. Um, we have the only blind team in, or visually impaired team in uh, First Lego League, which is a global Lego competition of which there are 25,000 teams. And we're the only team of visually impaired kids in the world who uh, compete. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's a, it's a good time. And that was a cool thing that happened at Space Camp this year was we got to get into the robotics program and had uh, 12 kids do that. And uh, they had a really, a really good time. With the Lego and the robotics, how does that work with the visual impairments? Well, so the, the, the kids can build their stuff. Um, there's some conceptual issues, so we have to work on them with uh, building and naming all the parts so they can talk about things and, and we talk about uh, construction. But it's the programming part. And uh, Legos use um, something called Mindstorms, which is all graphical, and you drag icons around and change some numbers, which is totally inaccessible. But we program in um, C, C++. And there's a special little program that um, is quite accessible called BrickCC, B-R-I-X-C-C, that will work with the... Uh, NXT uh, Lego brick, and we have this special little interface that uh, will give us, because we have a, a display that's like an inch and a half by an inch and a half and uh, on the brick itself, and so we um, somebody wrote us a routine so we can run subroutines, seven different subroutines in a program, and it will put a great big number one or a two or a three that fill up the entire display, and it also speaks one, two, three, four, A, B, C. That's our seven programs. And uh, so then the kids program the subroutines, and we have a, um, a developer who is really excellent and works with the kids, and we did a refreshable Braille display. And then we learn the programming and the, you know, the back and forth. It takes a lot longer. Um, because we only have the kids two hours a week uh, because they go home on the weekend. And the, probably the rest of the kids that are in the competition are working, you know, many, many more hours a week. And they all go to the same school. I mean, our kids go to the same school, but they live all over Texas and they go home on the weekend. And the other teams are pretty much in their school, in the neighborhood, so they can all, it's easy for them to get together and work on the weekends or after school anytime, you know. So it's it's great fun. It, it teaches the kids. It, it's uh, a learning experience for the Lego teams because when our kids walk in with their canes, you know, there's, there's an immediate, like, wow, where are these guys from? You know, and we bring Braille writers and things, and we Braille everybody's name, and we talk about Braille. And so it's a real educational thing for them. And when we, um, you're required to make presentations to the judges. And when we do that, we provide the judges with materials in regular print, large print and braille, because, you know, one of the judges might be blind and we don't know. And we, you know, educate the, the judges. So we walk in and we hand them a piece of paper that says, you know, we're the the team from the, we're the dot bots, that's what we call ourselves, from the Texas School for the Blind. 
we can't see you pointing at us. And so here's here's all of our pictures and here's our names. Please call us by name and we will be happy to answer your questions. Wow. Um, Jim, what do you think your ideal view of the world for accessibility and visual impairments? Yeah, you know, still a lot of room for improvement. We're, you know, getting better all the time, but there's always something new. You know, the technology changes. So it's, uh, you know, I think the, the smart devices have a lot to, to offer, provided we get interfaces for all the things we want to have uh, interfaces for. And I think having a, uh, an Echo, um, which is, you know, sort of marketed as a mainstream thing, but I think will really be a boon for uh, accessibility. So um, that's where I see the, the future going is smart homes and smart devices and, you know, a smart world. Now, if we could just work on the humans getting smart, we'd be okay. How do you, how do you think we can do this? I don't know. You know, I'm, this, this is getting into the, you know, the world at large and all the wars and all the conflict and, uh, you know, the refugees and the, just lots and lots and lots of stuff. And uh, there's just, you know, I think humanity is its own worst enemy as well as its, its biggest champion. And we have issues to work out, you know, disability aside. But that's a whole different conversation. Yeah, it, it is indeed. But regarding the, the disability aspect, do you think it's a company or an individual that could change the landscape? Yeah, no, I think mostly it's going to be companies because, you know, the world is... is very, very technological, you know, the, you know, even in third world countries that are really, really poor, you might not have running water, but there's a cell phone in, uh, or clean running water. There's, you know, people do a lot of work and a lot of commerce with the cell phone. So it's become like a, um, you know, a, a necessary thing in the world, whether you have water, food, or you live in a safe environment or not, you still have a cell phone in order to communicate. And as we move more and more towards technologically based things, um, it's, you know, hopefully the uh, accessibility keeps up, not just for the blindness, but for, you know, everybody else. Because I think if, as you become, um, you know, as you get older and, and uh, your hands start shaking more and you have other sorts of issues, having a voice input device like the Echo will be a, a huge thing. And for people who no longer have the ability to type, et cetera, it will be a, a major thing, having the voice input and the voice control of things. Um, with the software side, how do you think we can improve that? Well, I think most everything is going web-based. It's getting harder to find. Well, there are standalone programs, but you know, most everything is going web-based. And that's just a matter of education, you know, and Google is, is trying hard and Apple is, is trying hard. It's just getting all the other little people out there to uh, who are doing small projects and are not global multinationals to uh, make sure they program the right way. There's still massive, massive amounts of education that needs to happen for web developers and for accessibility in general. And that's not just the U.S. or any particular spot. I think it's just globally. As, as things change and people live longer and the disabilities happen more uh, just because of age, there's more need for things to be accessible. And maybe this, uh, you know, the, all the baby boomers 
will start having an impact and start demanding that things be accessible. But most of those people, it's one of those odd things. People who are old don't see themselves as having a disability. If you ask someone, you know, if I asked my mother-in-law, do you have a disability? She would say, no. I said, do you see, can you read the newspaper? And said, well, no, that's just because I'm old. Do you have trouble hearing the television? Well, yeah. Can you hear a conversation? Not so much anymore, but that's just because I'm old. They don't see it as a disability. It's just I'm old. And so it's, you know, the, those, the, 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 the oldsters, as it were, need to uh, step up and say, I need stuff in a bigger font and I need, you know, things louder or, you know, things like that. And Windows did a remarkable thing. Years ago, they used to have the, there was an accessibility icon that was the wheelchair symbol and nobody used it, you know, and it was an A. So as soon as, because accessibility started with an A. So as soon as you went into the control panel, there was this big wheelchair icon that was to set up all the accessibility features of Windows, except most people who needed it didn't know what it was for. They thought it was for adjusting your wheelchair and they weren't sure why that would be in Windows. It didn't make any sense to them because accessibility is a term of art of people in the accessibility field and somewhat the disability field. But the average person who doesn't see as well as they used to or has you know, a slight hearing impairment doesn't see themselves as disabled. And so they never bothered to check it out. And then um, Windows very wisely changed that to ease of use and change the whole icon to just be some generic amorphous icon. And ease of use is all about usability. And it's like, so, can you read print? You know, and they made it all functionally based. Do you have trouble hearing? Then let's change your volume. Do you have trouble reading the print? Then let's change your print size, and let's do this thing and do that thing. And uh, I think that was a major thing to make it functionally based rather than disability based. Because before it was, are you blind or have a vision impairment? Well, who knows? You know, a lot of people say I'm just old. With the ease of use thing, it's like, can you read newsprint? Can you do these specific tasks? And then they teased out what adjustments they needed to make to the uh, operating system to make it easier to use. And I think a lot of accessibility is the the... There's this merging of, of accessibility and usability. They've always been sort of close, but I think it's, it's in some ways it's getting a little harder to tease apart on what's accessibility and what's usability. Jim, who inspires you? Oh, lots of people. Um, uh, Greg Vanderheiden was one. Uh, from the Trace Research Trace Resource Center or Research Center and uh, George Kersher from uh, what are they called now Learning Ally Recordings for the Blind and, and Visually Impaired he was a, a huge uh, force in my life as was uh, Greg Vanderheiden um, my good buddy Jay Stightley um, another friend here in Austin uh, is uh, Jim Thatcher and John Slayton. Um, 
Jim Thatcher worked for IBM and invented the screen reader. For um, in fact, he, he helped develop this screen reader um, hardware software for the IBM PC way back when. And uh, let's see if there's anybody else. Um, probably might be Natalie Barriga, who was my uh, major professor at uh, University of Texas when I was getting my degree. She's one of the uh, grand dames of uh, teachers of the visually impaired who was around for forever and ever. She just passed away recently at, at 99. Is there any books that you recommend to friends, Jim? Or do you read it all? Oh, um, lots of science fiction. I, I read a lot, a lot of science fiction. Um, any particular book? No, because I think everybody's tastes sort of vary. Um, I tend towards the, the classics, you know, um, Asimov and, and Clark and Heinlein and that sort of thing. I like reading the new stuff because it always makes you think. And the, uh, the, the stuff that comes out of science fiction, you know, they've predicted so many different things over the years, and it's just interesting reading. I like an author who, um, who you know, writes up to their author or to their uh, reader. I don't like uh, authors who write down to the reader, you know, try and get, I'm not sure what the right term is. Oh, but I will say, um, huge fan of Terry Pratchett and a huge fan of Jasper Ford and the, uh, the Thursday Next series. That's the main character. Um, he's got a series of three books, four books. Well, it's like seven, eight books in the series now, but there were two books, well, three books. There was uh, The Air Affair and um, The Well of Lost Plots and Lost in a Good Book. He has a, a take on what books mean and how they work in the human brain that is is fantastical. And I just, I've read all three of those probably five or six times. If you could give advice to your younger self, what would it be? Um... Uh, I don't know. I mean, I give advice to younger people, and one is um, live below your means always and save. <laughs> that has held me in, in uh, great stead um, because so many people these days, money burns a hole in their pocket, um, and I have to have everything now. Um, the other would be uh, follow your dreams and don't be afraid to... Uh, to risk because I, I started out in, in mechanical engineering and just said, um, no, I'm, I'm not going to do this and, and switched to, uh, education and had regrets for years and years that, um, I never got my mechanical engineering degree. And I think I've done good work as, as, uh, because, you know, I am a technician engineer I got to figure out how to make it work and how to make it work better. And I found a, you know, a great field in education to work in that I could, could, um, apply my, uh, avocation of wanting to tinker with stuff while being an educator. Is there one piece of advice that you would give to maybe myself, the listeners or one of your students? What would it be? Oh, geez. I don't know. Um, Oh, um, yeah. How about um, 
work hard, play hard, and laugh a lot. You know, that life should be a joy. And you should absolutely enjoy whatever it is you're doing. And if you're not having fun at what you're doing, it's time to do something else. But don't quit right away. Make sure you find another job first. Because I've seen people do silly things. And it's like, I hate this job. I quit. It's like, did you have anything else lined up? What are you going to do now? Don't be short-sighted. But at the same time, if it's worth doing, it's worth having fun at. Jim, I want to say thank you very much for coming onto the show and sharing your stories, your experiences, your knowledge, and other things that came up. Well, and thank you for, for having me. This has been a, an interesting experience. I haven't had anybody uh, had an interview like this before, so that was it was quite interesting. Thank you for listening to The Aaron O'Dowd Show. Where the world's best stories are told. If you like, please post a review or subscribe to the show. To find out more, contact us at aaronodowd.com. That's A-R-O-N-O-D-O-W-D.com. We're always ready to share another magnificent tale from the world's best storytellers. You. So stay tuned and rock on. <laughs>